scripture this morning is from the book of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared to you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, you did this as you, as you did it to the least of one of my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not come and clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. They will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did not do so to the least of one of those of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into the eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. Towards the end of his life, um, a godly old preacher was asked, what parting word have you for the unbeliever who does not take Jesus Christ seriously? And the old preacher replied, flee from the wrath to come and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we... Um, we have before us um, um, some of the most um, sober, sobering words uh, in all of Scripture. We pray that you would bless the preaching and the hearing of the Word to your honor and to your glory and to the, to the good of the saints. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, uh, we're going to look at some of what Jesus has to say about the final judgment. Uh, it is a doctrine that is central to the Christian faith. While there are a number of, quote-unquote, judgments of God in history, many, M-I-N-E, M-I-N-I, many judgments, um, the Bible teaches that there will be one final judgment. We're going to look at these verses under five questions, and the first of which is this. How certain is the final judgment? Well, I think it's fair to say that um, the doctrine of a final judgment is dismissed by many people as a sick fairy tale or as proof that God either, the Christian God either is not real or he's some kind of um, sociopathic, uh, mentally and emotionally ill uh, being. Uh, 
Many people who are faced with this doctrine will simply shrug it off and say, well, if that's what your God is like, then I don't want to have anything to do with him. And yet, even as the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes, God has put eternity in men's hearts. And therefore, no human being can ever get fully away from the thought of a final judgment. But whatever people believe about it, Jesus is clear and the Bible is clear that a day is coming, a day that is eternally fixed by God, on which the final judgment will take place. It is a part of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 17, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. In the Old Testament, while there are numerous days of the Lord we see in the Old Testament, they have they almost without question have historical application in their original context. We also believe, however, that all of the days of the Lord in the Old Testament point forward to this one consummate day of the Lord in which the final judgment will take place on the last day. There are other, many other verses you could go to, uh, Psalm 1-5, Ecclesiastes 3, 11, 12, Daniel 7, and Daniel 12, particularly if you want to have some homework to do this afternoon. In the New Testament, we see the doctrine of final judgment very, very clearly. Uh, for example, in our passage for today, also in Matthew chapter 7, uh, when Jesus says, um, I never knew you, uh, Acts 17, we read a moment ago, and other places as well. But when somebody asks, okay, so why why a final judgment? Now, I would say there's these, at least two reasons. First is this. If we don't understand the wrath of God against sin, then we will never understand the love of God and the mercy of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll never understand grace if we don't understand wrath. Why did Christ come? Why did Christ have to die? And the answer is because all human beings are born dead spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. God is holy and he's just and you must punish sin, the Bible says. And so we realize that God gave his only begotten son in love for his people. He gave the Lord Jesus to die the death that we deserved to provide in and through his person and work a way of salvation, a way to be declared righteous before God. If we don't understand wrath, the cross means nothing. The second thing is this, is because of the very nature of God as a just God. You know, many people have wrestled down through history with the sufferings of the righteous and the prosperity and seeming ease of the unrighteous or the unbeliever. Psalm 73, the psalmist says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. The final judgment will resolve all injustices. God cares very much about sin and wickedness and mistreatment. As one writer has put it, God does not always send in his accounts immediately. But one day there will be a final reckoning. Now, as to precisely when the day will be, no one knows. There are some markers in Scripture at some level. 
But even Jesus himself in the previous chapter, chapter 24, verse 36 in Matthew says, Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. The Father only knows. And so just like the ten virgins at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 25, the call is to be ready at any time. According to the Bible, people will be living life reaching for a chicken tender in the grove on a crisp fall day, out on a date, cutting the yard, pruning the flowers, reading a book, sitting in church, packing for a trip, trying to reel in the biggest bass you've ever seen. And bam, Jesus will return, and then there'll be the judgment. Be ready is the lesson of the gospel. And oh, that the Lord will find us ready in true repentance and faith in Christ on that day. So the certainty of the final judgment is clearly taught in the scriptures and even runs like a tape through our hearts and our minds. Second thing is, who will be the judge at the final judgment? Again, in our verses that we have today, Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man, which is a common messianic title for Jesus, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne for the judgment. Acts 17, God has fixed the day on which he would judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 2 Corinthians 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Philippians 3 that we just read, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, either willingly or unwillingly, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. Now, there are other passages in the Bible that refer to angels and believers somehow assisting in the judgment. The angels will be gathering the elect, and there's other things that are said, but uh, quite frankly, um, it's unclear exactly what that means. But, what is, but whatever that means, it's clear from Scripture that the judgment has been assigned by the Father to the Son. Third, who will stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Verse 32 says, all the nations, every single person, including every single Christian, from every racial, cultural, socioeconomic background who has ever lived in the history of mankind will be gathered before the judge, King Jesus. This will include the living and the dead. In fact, Scripture says elsewhere the judgment will include all of the angels who rebelled against God, including Satan. Fourth, what will be the nature of the final judgment? Verse 32 says, Those to be judged, having been gathered before him, Jesus will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep, the redeemed, the believers on his right hand, the place of honor. And he will place the goats, the unredeemed, the unbelievers on his left hand, which is the place of dishonor. And thus it will be a judgment of separation. It will be a separation of believers from unbelievers. It will be a separation of true believers from false believers. It will be a judgment of reward for some and a judgment of punishment for others, and eternal destinies will be fixed. Those who are eternally loved by God, who by God's grace in this life fled to Christ in repentance and faith, will hear the judge say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The sheep will receive glorified bodies will enter into life in its fullness, 
We'd be separated under perfect blessedness, full enjoyment of salvation and God's promise to be God to us and for us to be his people. They will be separated to full reception of this prepared and eternal inheritance that is blessed beyond our wildest imaginings. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart. It has never entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Full entrance into every spiritual blessing in Christ, life eternal in the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells. No more tears, no more death, no more mourning to live forever in perfect bliss and joy in the presence of God in Christ and with other believers in a perfect and redeemed world. And that's why it's a day of expectation and hope for the Christian, not something to be feared. Those on the left, rebels against God, who did not flee to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith, will hear the judge say on that day, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, a place of eternal punishment and darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal torment. Here we get a picture in language that, whether it's literal or figurative, uh, tells the story. It's a picture of separation from God and all that is good and holy and joyful and beautiful. It's a separation from other believers, including believing family members and friends. It's a separation unto an eternity of wretchedness. I have a letter written more than 50 years ago, maybe 75 years ago, by a godly mother wrote a letter to her two daughters and her sons-in-laws. Among the things she wrote in the letter were these words, I do not want you to make the mistake of putting material things above spiritual things. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? I want our family to be a, re a reunited family. I want our family to be a reunited family. And she underlined in the letter, a reunited family in the world to come. Your loving and devoted mother. Only two possible groups, sheeps, sheep, and goats, saved and lost. Fifth and finally, what will be the rationale? What will be the basis for the judgment? Well, it won't be baptism, and it won't be church membership or anything like that. So what will it be? It will be how we lived our lives. Specifically here in this text, the basis for distinction is on how the two groups treated the needy. I was hungry and you did or did not give me food. I was thirsty and you did or did not give me drink. I was a stranger and you did or did not welcome me. I was naked and you did or did not clothe me. I was sick and you did or did not visit me. I was in prison and you did or did not come to me. Now, some say that Jesus is referring here to needy brothers and sisters in Christ. It may be. I don't know. If that's true, then he's calling us, as one writer put it, to help the single Christian mother buy glasses for her 14-year-old son. He's calling us to visit the older Christian widow in the nursing home, to pay the mortgage of a brother and sister in Christ who has lost his or her job. 
He's calling us to identify with poor and persecuted Christians in North Korea and the Middle East. He's calling us to be the church. Others argue that it's not limited to Christians based on verses like Galatians 6.10, insofar as you have opportunity, do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith and the story of the Good Samaritan. In either case, it is help to the needy that is the basis here. Now, all this, of course, begs the question, some of you are saying, this guy has forgotten that we're Presbyterian. All of this begs the, the question, so does the text teach salvation by works? If you help the needy, you will be saved? And the answer is no. And the answer is no for three reasons. First, because Scripture everywhere teaches that salvation is by grace through faith. Everywhere, all throughout Scripture, we see that. Salvation is of the Lord. Romans 3, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the, the very famous one you know, by grace we save through faith, not of works from Ephesians chapter 2. So the first reason is everything in Scripture says no. We're not saved by the works that we do. The second reason that we can see that it's not teaching salvation by, uh, by works, that it's teaching salvation by grace, is from verse 34. Look what it says in verse 34. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That is, the kingdom prepared for you before you were born, before you had done any works. I loved you before your ancestors came to this country. I loved you before your father met your mother. I have loved you from before time. It's not because of what you've done. And the third thing, a third reason we see that salvation is by grace, not works, is also found in this passage. Look at the sheep's response to the judge's declaration or pronouncement. When did we, what, 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 you were hungry, we fed you? When did we see you hungry or thirsty? When did we see you a stranger or naked or sick? When, when did we see you in prison? I mean, they're surprised at these declarations by Jesus. I mean, they're, they're like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Why is that? Why are they surprised? Because mercy to fellow image bearers simply is who they are in Christ. It's not a scorecard. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Come. You who paid my mortgage when I was out of work. Come, you who visited me in the VA when I had no living relatives. Come, you who helped me get a car when I was a single mom needing to get back and forth from work. But when, Lord? When, when did we pay your mortgage or visit you in the VA or help you get that car? I tell you, Jesus will say, when you paid that needy sister's mortgage, you paid my mortgage. When you visited the lonely veteran in the VA, you visited me. When you helped that single mom get a car, you helped me get a car. One of my professors, Knox Chamlin, said something I have never forgotten. And he just, he had a way of stopping in the middle of a lecture and just saying something that you just wanted to kind of time out. Let me think about that for a little bit. I'll never forget him saying, he said, 
I believe that the people who will be the most rewarded in heaven will be the people who least expect it. And so while it may surprise us, the Bible teaches that we are saved by grace. And the Bible teaches that we are judged by works. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And guess what? There's no contradiction. As one writer puts it, Christian good works are simply evidence of the faith through which God has already declared us righteous. An irrevocable verdict that will simply be confirmed by the divine judge on the last day. I want to close with some, hopefully some encouragements and some exhortations. I don't know about you, but it's remarkable to me to consider that among all of the rationale Jesus could have used in this passage as the basis for distinguishing between sheep and goats, he chose mercy to the needy. Of everything he could have said, he chose mercy to the needy. But when we think about it, it, it really makes sense, doesn't it? Isn't this what grace does? I mean, isn't this what grace understood, received? Isn't it what it produces? Grace changes how we look at our time and our money and our abilities and other people. Grace changes our eyesight and our hearing. We know how much we're loved. We know that Christ did not flee from the wrath to come so that we could. We know what we've been saved from and we know what we've been saved to. And guess what? It just changes us. It can't help but change us. If I could end with a quote and a paraphrase a little bit of Titus chapter 2 verse 11 through 14. The grace of God that brings salvation trains us. The grace of God that brings salvation, it trains us. It trains us to live godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, zealous to feed the hungry, to give drink to the thirsty, to welcome the stranger, to clothe the naked, to visit the sick, to go to the imprisoned. That God would give us the grace, even as we think about the great deliverance that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would give us the grace to be the church in the world, that we would, we would be a place filled with people who are about the business of proclaiming the riches of Christ, and we would be about the other business of extending mercy to every single person in need in the best ways God gives us wisdom to do so to everyone that comes across our path. May God do that. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we pray that the grace that we find in the gospel, the grace that um, 
we flee from the wrath to come through the grace of our Lord Jesus. We pray that you would encourage us and move us toward extending mercy to others as we proclaim the gospel and minister to needs. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.